Well, we've had a good time this, uh, this today uh, with uh, Kirby this morning, subject on media, a good Q&A time, and then this afternoon. And we want to give this coming hour uh, to uh, Kirby, and uh, the subject this evening will be uh, the government and the worldview, uh, biblical worldview regarding that. So let's give him a warm welcome once again. Thank you. Before we begin on our session tonight, uh, for those of you that were with me this afternoon, I just thought I would mention a couple of books that uh, we talked about and didn't uh, maybe put on the screen long enough for some of you to write them down. I've already had a number of people asking me questions about heaven, so I thought I would point you, first of all, to perhaps the most exhaustive book I've ever seen on heaven, and that is by Randy Alcorn. Uh, He's a graduate of Western Seminary, lives in Oregon, and uh, has done a very good job. It is probably the thickest book I've ever seen on heaven. And that is encouraging because, as some of you were even pointing out, we don't really read a lot about heaven in the Bible. I think he has actually taken every verse that you could possibly relate to paradise heaven, the present heaven, or what would be called the intermediate heaven, and the new heaven and the new earth. And some people have even asked, you know, why is it that the Bible doesn't have that much on heaven? And I think if we really knew what heaven was like, We'd want to go there a lot faster. You know, if I knew what heaven was like, I'm thinking I'm crossing streets without looking both ways. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to go. But uh, I think he wants us to stay down here and have a ministry. So uh, if you really want to get what I think is really one of the best books, if not the best book ever written on heaven, that's Randy Elkhorn. But this afternoon, we also talked about some of these afterlife experiences. So I thought I'd mention the two books again by James Garlow that have just come out. One earlier was called Heaven and the Afterlife. And then he actually created a second one called Encountering Heaven in the Afterlife, which is full of stories. This afternoon we talked about 90 Minutes in Heaven and Heaven is for Real. But if you want to read some other shorter pieces, those are some books that I certainly would recommend. And again, Heaven is a topic that we love to talk about. It is one that uh, I have done whole weeks of series of messages on, and I gave you a shortened version of that, but the full version is on the thumb drive that I gave to uh, Joe. So he now has all seven presentations, either that I have given or will give. Uh, So you've actually, if you've been here, seen five of them. Tonight will be six, and tomorrow will be seven. Let me just mention real quickly, we're going on a plane tomorrow, and if you haven't had a chance to pick up one of the books that you might want, um, we did make those available. I'm glad to repack my suitcase, but uh, first of all, the books in the top row there are part of a biblical point of view series. These are ones over the last couple of years that I've put together. Uh, The program that I do is called Point of View, and what I've tried to do in each one of those books is identify the 50 or 60 most asked questions about Islam or intelligent design and give you short answers. So some of you that already have a copy of the book recognize it's really a pretty quick read and you can kind of read some of the excerpts. But then I also include in those books the best interviews I've ever done on the subject with certain experts. So if you wanted to know a little bit more about that and see what some of the experts have said, I quote some of that as well. So those books are available. Also, a book I'll be talking about tomorrow, which is not in the series, but it's similar, and that's Making the Most of Your Money in Tough Times. We'll talk about the Bible and economics tomorrow. And also, of course, if you are interested in a little more academic book, one that uh, we have used in high schools, Christian high schools and Christian colleges, uh, Christian Ethics in Plain Language. So 
I just brought a few of those books. Somebody asked if um, I would be glad to autograph those, and I would. And actually, we've done market research to find out that if you get an autograph book, it actually rather dramatically increases its resale value at garage sales. So uh, <laughs> if you would uh, want to get a copy of that and get me to autograph it, I'm glad to do so. Well, that is background. Let's, if we can, talk about another one of those controversial issues that the church asked me to address. And I recognize that we might have disagreements about government and social action, but again, you will see a handout there or a place where you can fill out some information and then we have some possible discussion questions. And what I want to try to do is just set a framework for a discussion. We can obviously disagree about one issue or another, but I hope that this will, in the hour that we have together, help you begin to think about uh, your civic responsibility. And maybe to start with, we have to recognize that we have a dual citizenship. Uh, Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven, and there's no doubt about that. Ultimately, we are sojourners in the land. We're just passing through. And while it is possible to get really caught up in the things of this world, we recognize our eternal destiny, as we talked about this afternoon, is heaven. But at the same time, we also see that in John 17, that uh, Jesus said that we have been sent into this world and thus have a citizenship here on earth. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. And so in a sense, we have a citizenship both in heaven and in earth. We used to hear a phrase of people that were too heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I think today we maybe have too many people that are too earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. And I think there's a balance between the two of those, but certainly I want to focus some of my time and attention on what are our responsibilities as citizens here on earth. And I think you could make a good case. If you want to turn with me to Romans 13, we're going to spend more time in that passage, but we'll jump around a little bit. And if you don't have a Bible or whatever, you can look up here. But I wanted to try to at least set the stage in probably one of the key sets of verses, which we'll look at in a little more detail in just a minute. But for now, I'm going to just pick out uh, verses 1 and 7 out of Romans 13. It says that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. We'll look a little bit later at some of the other verses, but I'll jump down to the fact that we are to render all to what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, um, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so first of all, we see that government isn't something that we came up with. God ultimately established it as an institution. And so as believers, we have a responsibility certainly to obey those in authority. But also, if we turn over to 1 Timothy 2, we see that Paul, as he is writing to Timothy, after some introductory remarks, gives him his first command. And his command is, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. So not only should we obey those in authority, it tells us that we should pray for those in authority. Now, I've had some people say, well, it's really hard to pray for whoever's in authority. You know, we sometimes like who we have in government. Oftentimes, we don't like who we like in government. But I don't see this as conditional here. When he's telling Timothy to pray for those in authority, think about who was in authority at that time. Well, probably the Roman Senate, the Caesars, maybe some other proconsuls, but they were people that probably were not necessarily the kind of people we would even want to vote into office. 
But it doesn't matter, he says, we should pray for those in authority. And so I take that, that uh, we do have a responsibility as believers to pray for those in authority. Well, who's in authority over you? I've put together what I call my key 16. You might come up with others, but certainly, if you think about this for a minute, there are at least 16 people in authority over you right now. That would include, first of all, the President of the United States, then the nine members of the Supreme Court. You have two United States Senators, you have a representative, you have a governor, you have a state senator, and a state representative. So you're praying for people in Washington, you're praying for people in Olympia, and you're really focusing on the fact that those are 16 people who are directly in authority over you. Now, if you want to add school council, your mayors, you know, whatever. But it seems to me that when we call for prayer, we really are calling for us to pray for those individuals, and I believe by name. Now, if you ask the average Christian, can you name who your state senator is? There's usually a long pause in the room. Sometimes what I call the RCA Victor dog look. Remember RCA Victor dog, you know, nipper the dog kind of, you know, why would I want to know who my state senator is or my state representative is? Uh, Some won't even know the governor. And a while back we got talking about um, Jay Leno going jaywalking. You can ask people who the president is. Sometimes they don't know or the vice president. Of course, you can ask them what the Ten Commandments are. I saw the other day. Name one of the Ten Commandments. Somebody thought and says... Freedom of speech. <laughs> you know, so we, uh, we have a lot of civic ignorance here, and it seems to me that we as believers should obey those in authority. We should also pray for those in authority. And I would also say that I would think we also have a responsibility to vote for those in authority. You might say, well, what verse do you have for that? Well, I really don't. But you have to recognize that when the New Testament was written, there wasn't the opportunity to vote. But the implications in Romans 13, we'll come back to it a little bit later, seem to indicate that those people who have authority are to be held responsible for those, uh, that authority. Certainly, we will, as we'll talk about a little bit later, there are different gifts and callings, and Christians sometimes are given greater opportunities than others. Uh, Christians in China right now don't vote for who is the president or the premier, but Christians in this country have the privilege to do so. So I believe ultimately when we stand before God, he's going to ask us, how have you used your gifts? How have you used the opportunities that I've set before you? And I think one of those is, have you voted? You know, have you exercised a stewardship responsibility that we are privileged in this country to have, which believers in other countries oftentimes are not privileged to have? So those are at least some of our civic duties that I think are kind of the baseline. A little bit later, I'm going to talk about given different gifts and callings, some people might be called to a higher level of political participation. If you run for political office, for example, God may be calling you to a higher level of political participation. I certainly am. I've been a precinct chairman. I have also been very involved in the political aspect. My father ran for the California Assembly, and I've been around politics for a long time, and I recognize that there can be a very definite place for Christians in the political arena, just as there's a definite place for Christians in the medical arena or in the business arena or the legal arena or whatever arena it might be. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what I want to try to do for just a few minutes is say, okay, how have Christians in the past seen their responsibility? If you love history, for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to take you through some little points of history that just help you understand how pastors and churches have been very involved in the political process, exercising their civic duty. And so we'll talk about that. 
To do that, first of all, we'll go to what is known as the First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening came in large part when Jonathan Edwards saw a revival that actually broke out in his church. Uh, Suzanne and I have had a chance to go to Connecticut many times. Of course, we used to live in Connecticut when I went to graduate school. But the last time I was there, I was actually allowed to preach in the pulpit. That was the pulpit that Jonathan Edwards was in when he was a student at Yale University. Back then it was Yale College. And when you climb up into this little cupola, you think, is this thing going to collapse underneath me? As a matter of fact, that church has been there almost 200 years, and it's the third church on that uh, site. The other two were burned down by the Indians. So that's how long this church has been there. And Jonathan Edwards, interestingly enough, saw what eventually came to be known as the Great Awakening. This revival began to spread through New England. But then the individual that really sort of brought it through the rest of the colonies is a man who actually was born in in England, his name was George Whitfield. And George Whitfield made the first continental tour of the colonies and began to speak out. And this was really something that began to bring all of the colonists together because the colonies used to relate back to England. They didn't think of themselves as 13 united colonies. But as he began to talk about righteousness and evangelism and some of the evangelistic crusades today, if you've ever seen a Billy Graham crusade, a lot of that's modeled back on the George Whitfield uh, outreach. And a lot of people say that the beginning of the American Revolution came from the preaching of George Whitfield as he began to bind the colonists together. Paul Johnson, who wrote the book, The History of the American People, said that really the preaching of, John, uh, of George Whitfield really was the death knell to British colonialism. Well, with that, you began to have all sorts of preachers begin to speak out on the various issues of the day, including liberty. And at the end of the revolution, the American Revolution, actually John Adams wrote a very important piece called The Meaning of the American Revolution. And he began to identify what he thought were the men most responsible for the American Revolution. Now, if you were to go to the University of Washington and talk to a professor of history and ask him or her, who are the people most responsible, do you think, for the American Revolution? What do you think the answers would be? Oh, maybe Samuel Adams, maybe George Washington, somebody like that. But John Adams, he probably was closer to that than anybody else. Who was John Adams? Well, first of all, he served as the first vice president of the United States under George Washington. Then later he served as president of the United States. Later his son, John Quincy Adams, also served as president. First time we had a sitting president also have a son later serve as president. That happened again in history, didn't it? You know, and uh, so he was closer than anyone else. And in his writings about the meaning of the American Revolution, he said the two men that he mentioned were Dr. Dr. Mayhew and Dr. Cooper. Now, again, I don't care if you are a student of American history, you've got to say, who are these people that actually John Adams thought were so important in terms of the American Revolution? Well, it turns out that, first of all, Jonathan Mayhew was a pastor of what was known at that time as West Church. And he actually preached a sermon many years before the American Revolution. And it was a sermon about civil disobedience. And the question he raised was, would it ever be appropriate for the colonists to separate from England? When do we obey Caesar? In this case, when do we obey the king? And is there ever a time we would disobey the king? And his argument was, if there was never a time we would ever disobey the king, then actually the king becomes God. That can't be right. 
And so he takes them through a whole series of passages, um, everything from the Hebrew midwives and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and prayer, and also into Acts 5.29, where the disciples say, we will obey God rather than men, and begins to set forth the case for the possibility that they might actually reject the legitimate authority of the king because he's exceeded his earthly authority that God has given to him. Samuel Cooper, minister of Rattle Street Church, most of the members of his congregation uh, fought a very famous battle at Bunker Hill. Anybody ever been to Boston? Ever seen Bunker Hill? Okay, we've got some back there in the back. You know, if you walk Freedom Trail, one of the things you see is the Battle of Bunker Hill. And those were individuals that actually were part of that church and also was very influential both in the life of John Adams and Samuel Adams. So those are some up in Massachusetts, but to be fair, I thought I'd also talk about one other individual that many times is quoted, and his name is John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. Now, he actually served as a pastor in Woodstock, Virginia, and when he did so, he actually not only was a Lutheran pastor, but he also served in the House of Burgesses. Anybody ever been to Williamsburg? Ever been to Williamsburg? Okay, if you go there, you remember that when they take you into this one place where they sit, you can actually sit where John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg actually served. So here he was a Lutheran pastor, but he also served in the legislature. Well, interestingly enough, he actually was there at a time in 1776 when the story came in about the fact that the British had fired on the Americans. And at this point, he began to realize that there was a need for him to leave Williamsburg, which is kind of in the southeast corner of Virginia, and go all the way up to Woodstock, Virginia, which is in the Shenandoah Valley. And he arrives in his... um, home Saturday night and then Sunday morning now he stands in the pulpit and begins to preach on Ecclesiastes 3 and as he does he comes to that point about in the verse where it says there's a time for peace and a time for war and he now begins to unfold what is happening the British have fired on the Americans revolution is inevitable and he now as he preaches on that particular idea um, finishes the sermon, and this is a painting of what happened, as he leaves the pulpit and comes down in the steps, he takes off his garment, and underneath is the garment of an actual officer in the Continental Army. And then he stood at the back of his church and called for the members of his church to actually join him. And 300 men in his church left their families, left the church, and actually fought with him through the Revolutionary War. Now, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg actually served under George Washington all the way from the beginning all the way to Yorktown. And eventually, interestingly enough, became a major general in the Continental Army. Well, as this is unfolding, we have a debate in the 18th century, not unlike the debate we have today. Because John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg actually had a brother, Herbert Augustus Muhlenberg, who was a Lutheran pastor in New York. And we have the correspondence between the two. And his brother says, how dare you, first of all, serve as both a pastor and as a member of the Burgesses, the House of Burgesses. But even more so, now as a pastor, you are actually enlisting in the army. Well, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg writes back to Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg and says, well, I stand for liberty so that you can stand in the pulpit and preach the gospel. 
Well, that doesn't land very long because first Washington fights a battle in Boston and then the British ships come into New York Harbor. And as a result, Washington barely escapes with his life as they go up through Manhattan and then into New Jersey. And as the British troops march into town, they throw Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg out of his pulpit. And all of a sudden he begins to rethink what his actions were. And at the end of the war, interestingly enough, not only did John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg serve in Congress, but also his brother Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg served in Congress as well. Anybody ever been to the United States Capitol? If you go there, you will see two statues, and they are the statues of those two brothers. But here's something else. If you ever get a tour of the Capitol, ask them to take you into the room of the Speaker of the House. And if you walk in the room, turn around, and you will see that the largest painting in the room is a painting of Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, because he was the first Speaker of the House in the newly formed United States Congress. Or if you're in Washington, D.C., go to the National Archives, and if you go there, you will see the Declaration of Independence, you will see the United States Constitution, and you will see the Bill of Rights. And when you look at the Bill of Rights, you will see there are only two signatures there, the signature of John Adams and the signature of Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. He started out by having questions about whether Christians could be involved in politics. Before it was all through, he actually ended up being first Speaker of the House. Well, let's look at a few other things. How have pastors influenced even the framing documents that we have? Well, interestingly enough, when I was at Georgetown University, my major professor at Georgetown was working with other professors at places like LSU, University of Houston. And one of the things they wanted to try to do is find out where did the ideas from the Constitution come from. And so they looked at all the documents, about 1,500 different documents from what are called the founding documents at the time. These are all sorts of letters and pieces of correspondence, the notes from the Constitution Convention. And then as they looked at that, they found that there were 3,000 quotes. And as you can see, when they looked at the writers from the founding era, they found that the one document quoted most often was what? The Bible, 34% of the time. But then they went back and recognized that the Bible wasn't just necessarily being quoted. Actually, most of those quotes actually came from sermons of the day. About three-fourths of all those sermons came from sermons that were printed. Now, what happened during the 18th century, we didn't have CDs, we didn't have cassettes or anything, so if you wanted to have your sermon have any more exposure, pastors would manuscript out their sermons, then they would reprint those sermons, and those sermons traveled all up and down the eastern seaboard. Matter of fact, when I was in Connecticut preaching in that church where Jonathan Edwards had been as a student, they had me take my um, sermon and write it out, and to this very day they still reprint all of the sermons from that era. But what was happening is, is these sermons that were being reprinted were then being quoted back and forth. Because the pastors of that day were addressing issues about rights and liberty and the structure of government and so many different things. And so, as a matter of fact, this is one of the books on my shelf, The Political Sermons of the American Founding Era. That's one of two volumes of that. And as you read those sermons, you realize that the pastors of that day were really addressing the issue. So it's now very clear that most of the very novel ideas that show up in the United States Constitution came from the pulpits of America in the 18th century. Is that amazing? Now imagine if we wanted to write a constitution today. 
Do you think that those people writing the Constitution would quote from the sermons that are heard in Bible churches around America? You know the answer to that, don't you? (laughs) For a couple of reasons. First of all, um, the political class doesn't care what the church has to say. But moreover, it's interesting, if you go back and look at those sermons, they were much more specific and relevant, and uh, certainly addressing some very important issues. And again, it's incredible to see how many of those ideas were first found in sermons in the 18th century, and it ended up in the United States Constitution. Well, another thing pastors used to do during that time is they would have what are election sermons. The Sunday before a vote, they would actually have a sermon to help people in the congregation to understand biblical principles about voting. Now, this particular one was a sermon delivered before John Hancock. Remember John Hancock? He's one of the big handwriting. And also Samuel Adams, and it was delivered by Daniel Foster. Uh, I've got lots of different examples of that. And if you ever come to uh, the Dallas area, There is a museum in Alito that has so many of these election sermons and many of these manuscripts. And again, this was an idea to guide the congregation to think biblically about how to vote. They didn't tell them who to vote for, but they gave them principles so that they would cast a godly vote. Also, here's another one that I've collected, and this was a sermon. Oftentimes, pastors would deliver a sermon after a disaster, after there was an earthquake or a hurricane or a tornado or something like that. They would ask, what is God trying to teach us through this fire or this flood or this tornado? And again, the idea of being relevant to the issues of the day and helping people to think biblically about every area of life. And if you go from first great awakening to then the second great awakening, or even what some people call the third great awakening or the layman's prayer revival, you see that pastors and churches oftentimes were preaching against many of the social ills of the day. Uh, If you go back and look at many of the social movements, especially after the Second Great Awakening, you have Christians that were involved in the abolition movement, they were involved in the suffrage movement, they were involved in the child labor movements, even to this day, some of those involvements in the civil rights movement. And again, the point I wanted to explain is there was a time in which the church really felt that it needed to address the issues. They weren't necessarily trying to turn the church into what I call a political action committee, but they did understand that the church, if it was going to be the church, needed to speak to all the issues and help inform people on how to be involved. Of course, that leads to a question that a lot of people have. Well, wait a minute. What about the separation of church and state? Uh, No matter when I speak on an issue of Christians and politics, I always have somebody say, well, no, but the Bible prevents us from ever having the church speak to those issues. And I said, well, why is that? Well, because the Bible, uh, excuse me, the Constitution, I misspoke, and the Constitution has a separation of church and state. And normally, especially when I'm in a university classroom, I'll uh, pull out a sample of the Constitution, I'll hand it to them and say, can you show me where that is? Because I've had some trouble finding that. And you can see them kind of flipping page after page after page. And it's a... I think helpful for us for just a minute to say, what about this idea of the separation of church and state? Well, first of all, when I ask uh, even sometimes law students, where does the phrase separation of church and state appear in the Constitution? They start flipping the pages and never really find it. And the reason for that is, is the phrase separation of church and state does not appear in the Constitution. Even the words church, state and separation don't appear in the Constitution. 
Okay, well, where do we come up with this idea of separation of church and state? Well, it really goes back to Thomas Jefferson, our third president. He served after John Adams, and he wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association in 1802. And he used the letter to explain why he did not declare days of public prayer and thanksgiving. George Washington had done so, John Adams had done so, but he did not. And so he explained that ultimately that he argued that really the president had no authority to proclaim a religious holiday. His argument was, I'm the president of the federal government. A governor in the states can do that, but I have no uh, legitimate constitutional authority to do so. And he also talked about building a wall of separation between church and state. Borrowed the phrase from Roger Williams, basically, in Rhode Island. And the phrase sort of was obscure. It was mentioned, I think, once in the 19th century, but no one really paid it any attention at all until 1947. And that's where Justice Hugo Black, serving on the Supreme Court, revived the metaphor in the case of Everson versus Board of Education. And now he said that basically the wall must be kept high and impregnable. And we began, starting in 1947, to have this idea that there should be a separation between church and state. Now, is there wisdom in keeping a separation between the two institutions? Of course. What did Jesus say when somebody asked him if they were to pay tax to the Romans? What did he say? Well, show me a coin, right? He says, whose likeness is on the coin? What did they say? Caesar's. What did he say? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render unto God the things that are God. So we recognize to keep the institution separate, but does that mean that the church can never speak to social issues? No, certainly didn't. Some people say, well, yeah, but that's what the First Amendment was all about. Well, was it? Because when the First Amendment was put forward, it was put forward by a man by the name of James Madison, who later served as president. He is considered to be the architect of the Constitution. And when he first came up with the idea of, at that time it was the Third Amendment, the first two were rejected, so it became the First Amendment, this was the actual wording. It said, The civil rights of none shall be abridged on the account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or in any pretext infringed. What was his concern there? The establishment of what? A national religion. Now, many of the states had various state religions, Anglican, Congregational, Quaker, and things of that nature, but there was no national religion. That was obviously his concern. After it went through a couple of revisions, we ended up with what today is called the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law establishing religion, making an establishment of religion, or one that prohibits or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so, again, I think we have had a complete misreading of what the First Amendment was intended. And today we have this metaphor of the wall of separation. But it was not part of the Constitution. It was part of a decision that was rendered by Hugo Black that came to later actually change almost every court decision. In 1947, it kind of came and went. Nobody really paid much attention to it. But in 1961, there was a case about school prayer. And the Supreme Court then used that to say that mandatory school prayer was unconstitutional, actually in 1962. By 1963, they also said that mandatory Bible reading was unconstitutional. And it continued on by 1980, 
It actually said that posting the Ten Commandments on the wall in a Kentucky schoolroom was unconstitutional. By the way, I might mention that those Ten Commandments are still up there. Supreme Court ruled them unconstitutional, but Kentucky never took them down. They're still up there this very day. But their argument was that posting the Ten Commandments could be dangerous because the students might read the commandments, might believe the commandments, and act upon the commandments. Isn't that kind of odd? From there, they began to say things like, well, we can't have prayer at a graduation ceremony. And then we have the case that I always like to talk about in the state of Texas, where they said you could not even have a prayer before a high school football game. The Supreme Court ruled that you had a separation of player and prayer. And the argument from the Supreme Court is that a high school, Texas high school football game is not a religious event. They've never been to a Texas high school football game. (laughs) But nevertheless, we see today the rules that have come down about this idea of separation of church and state. I believe that the church does have a responsibility to speak to the moral principles of these issues. I don't know that it needs to or should take a stand on many of these issues in terms of specific legislation or a specific candidate. But it does seem to me that if we look at some of the issues before us today, there certainly issues that the church needs to address in some way about the issue of abortion. I mean, we are talking about since 1973, at least 50 million, and some people are estimating maybe 60 million unborn babies aborted. Does the church have something to say about that? I mean, this is now larger than the population of Canada. I mean, we can't even imagine the impact that that has had. And it does seem to me that the church, at least when there are opportunities to preach on Psalm 139 or other passages, address the issue, certainly, of abortion. What about this issue of church and state? Is there a responsibility to stand for religious liberty and to encourage those maybe in the legal profession to stand for these principles? It seems to me if you have doctors, you would want them to stand for pro-life concerns. And if you have lawyers in your congregation, you'd certainly want them to stand for a proper judicial interpretation of the Constitution. What about poverty? Is there a role for the church in poverty? Certainly, if we want to go back and look at the historical role, a very good book written many years ago by Marvin Alasky was The Tragedy of American Compassion. That book later was picked up by people like uh, Speaker of the House, then Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, and led to welfare reform. And uh, today, as I mentioned, uh, Marvin Alasky is the editor of World Magazine. Is there something the church can do to address the issue of poverty? Certainly there is, and certainly something we should speak out on. How about the issue of same-sex marriage? That's sort of already come up, so it's pretty obvious that uh, we should uphold a biblical view of marriage and talk about that. Uh, We can look at some of the other medical issues, stem cell research. Certainly adult stem cell research does not raise any moral questions, and that, I think, is a very legitimate area of uh, scientific investigation. But what about destroying embryos, embryonic stem cell research? What about cloning? Uh, These are issues that are certainly front and center in the 21st century, and I believe that if there's ever a time when our society needed to hear from the church, needed to hear biblical principles, it's right now as we get into some very difficult and contentious issues in the 21st century. But let me, in the time that we have remaining, spend a little bit of time maybe setting forth in more detail, first of all, biblical principles concerning government, and then some biblical principles concerning social action. Is everybody with me still? 
I know it's kind of warm, it's kind of dark, but we'll see if we can kind of make our way through it. Let's go back to Romans 13. If you have that still open, you can look at it, or I'll have it up on the screen here, and look at all the passages that are relevant, because it helps us understand a little bit more. The first is that, again, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's saying every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. He goes on to say that real rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, that is government, is a minister of God. Isn't that interesting? He refers to government as a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Then he goes on to say that, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are, now he calls them, servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all who is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Seven verses that help us understand a little bit more about this idea of obeying government. But not only does Paul say this, but Peter tells us that we are to submit. Now, submit was a word that surfaced in the last Republican debate, you know, with Michelle Bachman. But, you know, people have a problem with submit. But here, Paul tells all of us, male or female, to do what? To submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So here, we are to obey, we are to submit, and as we pointed out just a minute ago, we are also to pray for those in authority. So how does this look in terms of a diagram? I've never seen this diagram in a book. I kind of created it on my own. But it's my way in a short amount of time to sort of give you an idea of how really there are three biblical institutions that God has created. The left-hand column here is the institution known as the state or the government. And I've already put up some of the key verses. That would be first, uh, uh, first would be Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2. And so those are some key verses to really understand the state or the government. When you talk about the symbol, I use the symbol of the sword. Why? Because in Romans 13 it says that government does not bear the what? Sword for nothing. That is saying that ultimately God has given to the government the use of physical force. Now what would the sword be used for? Well, the sword would be used, first of all, to protect you from evildoers, from aggressors, other foreign nations, or in our day, terrorists. But the sword also could be seen as used to protect you against criminals or insurrections within your own particular jurisdiction. But we see that certainly God has given to the state physical force uniquely. The next institution obviously would be the church. And here I put down 1 Corinthians because Paul when he's writing to Corinth is really giving lots of principles about what the church should be. I put down here 1 Timothy 3 
because those are the qualifications for an elder. And that helps us understand that just as there is civil authority, there's also ecclesiastical or church authority. That there's a structure of those above us in terms of civil authority. But even in your own church, I assume you have elders in your own church here, and most churches do, or deacons or something, you have authority structures as well. The symbol I use here is the staff, the idea of the bishop's staff, or the, in a sense the church has the moral authority. So we would recognize that there is a legitimate argument between the separation of church and state as institutions. And certainly that was something that was practiced for some time. You know, Jesus said, you know, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Later on, there came to be what was known as the doctrine of the two swords or the Gelasian doctrine. Pope Gelasius said there was the empire and the papacy. And they actually wanted to keep those separate. But eventually, during the Middle Ages, they began to have what was known as the investiture controversy, where people that were in the church could invest people with political authority. In other words, they could define what heresy was and then had the political authority to prosecute that. And that led to the in- Inquisition. Later on, you had problems with Calvin's Geneva. We even had problems with Cromwell's England. One of the reasons our founders wanted to get away from a national church is they wanted to keep at least the institution separate, but they always believed that the church would be speaking to the moral issues. So we have a state. We have a church. We also have one other institution. What's that? The family. And I put down Ephesians 5 and 6. The structure of the family, the symbol I use there is the rod. The idea is spare the rod, spoil the child. And this would be instructional force. But again, it helps us understand that there are three separate institutions and those authority structures actually exist. Now, here's something else that's kind of interesting. If the family breaks down or the church isn't doing its job, what happens to the size of the state? And I think you have a a very reasonable explanation for the vast expansion of the government in the 20th and now 21st century. Matter of fact, one of my professors at Georgetown University, actually my major professor, Gene Kirkpatrick, who later went on to be ambassador of the United Nations, said that really the most fundamental fact of the 20th century is the government has grown far beyond what the framers would have ever imagined. But in large part it was due because if the family falls apart, then somebody has to be the father, someone has to be the mother. And so the growth of the welfare state and other things. Which brings us back to an idea that if we could get families... In a sense, families are the very structure of civilization. If the family does well, then society does well. The family falls apart, then people have to pick up the pieces. And so again, you can see the implication of some of those institutions. Before we close, let me then end with just a couple of biblical principles about social action. I've talked about the structure of government. I've showed you that Christians oftentimes were involved in government. But before we're ending here, let me spend a little bit of time talking about how we might get involved uh, in social service and social action. And I'll give you five principles if you're taking notes. But again, this will all be on the material that we're making available to you. And I think the first principle is what I would call the principle of salt and light. Someone asked me the other night, well, what is the biblical basis for even being involved socially or politically? And I think one biblical basis is the idea that you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So what does the Bible mean when it says that we are the salt of the earth? I remember when I was a young Christian, I thought, does that mean we're like sodium chloride? What does that mean exactly? So what do you think? 
Well, I think most of us would say, well, salt is, you know, I noticed a number of you putting salt on some of the things that you were eating, so it's a flavoring. In other words, it's an enhancement. So it seems to me that, first of all, we should be, uh, you know, something that might be an enhancement or a flavoring or be attractive to people. Certainly that's the case. I think another example is before we had refrigeration, salt was used as what? Preservative, of course. So that means that we are preservative. And that is we should be doing what we can to be a positive influence in society. So that would certainly be the case. It also, I think, explains a little bit of the tribulation. Imagine taking every Christian out of the world. You know, sometimes we're not all that salty where we are, but we're at least a little bit salty. Imagine if you could take every Bible-believing Christian out of the world. You could see how this would be a very different kind of world. But okay, help me with this one. What about salt that is no longer salty? What does he mean there? Well, there have been some that have pointed out that salt sometimes not only was used as flavoring or as a preservative, but it was also mixed oftentimes with gypsum in a water-based paste, and it was put on the roofs of those homes because oftentimes they would uh, lay those down so it would not leak, and then they could actually walk on it. Or sometimes salt would actually go bad, and as a result, they just throw it out, and it was good to be nothing more than trampled underfoot. In other words, what he's basically saying, I think, is don't let your salt be mixed with the gypsum of the world. In other words, don't be worldly. Don't be useless in terms of God's kingdom. So how are we doing there? Are Christians living a real godly Christian life before the watching world? Are we doing real well on that one? Not so well, are we? George Barna, in his study a number of years ago, actually actually put together a chart. And the chart had all sorts of different kinds of behaviors. And then it had one column for the number of born-again Christians that engaged in that behavior. The other chart was for Americans in general. Now, some of the things on the top of the chart were positive. They were things like, I've read a book for pleasure within the last week. I've given to a nonprofit organization within the last month. I'm registered to vote, all those kinds of things. He worked down to some, you know, I'm engaged in a chat room. You get all the way down to, you know, I've gambled, I've uh, beat my wife, I've uh, been involved in pornographic uh, viewing or whatever. So you got good, uh, a little bit questionable, bad, okay? Now, would you not assume that when we talk about a positive behavior, Christians would be better than the world, right? And would you not assume that if we're talking about a negative behavior, Christians would have a lower percentage than the world? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? There's virtually no difference. There's a few where there's an 8% split, but by and large, in his book, The Second Coming of the Church, I think he documented for any fair-minded person that Christians are oftentimes very much like the world. And so here, we see in the principle of salt that first of all, We're not all that salty. And it seems to me that we should be a lot more salty in our world. The second point that we would make is we're also not only salt, but we're light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, they didn't have a lot of lights. matter of fact, when we come back from the campfire tonight, if you notice, there aren't as many lights around here. So you kind of use things to kind of guide. And oftentimes, those cities on the hill, they would provide enough light that even if you were traveling through the desert, if you kind of knew where those were, you could kind of stay on a path because it would help guide you. You could use the the stars to guide you, but you could use cities on a hill to guide you. So that's the principle there. 
But then what about this idea that you would cover your light? You know, this little light of mine, I'm going to what? Let it shine. So why would I cover it over? What would be the reason that I would no longer be uh, broadcasting or showing light to a culture? Persecution? You know, maybe apathy? And so again, I think Jesus is saying that we should be the light bearers in a very dark society. That's the first principle, the principle of salt and light. second principle is the principle of priorities. In the interest of time, I won't go to the passage and read all of it, but you may be familiar with it anyway. And this is where Jesus comes, and he begins to heal everybody in the town. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and so the whole town is at his uh, Simon Peter's door. Then it says the next morning, he went to play in a solitary place. The disciples get up, you know, and, okay, where's Jesus? And say, they're looking for him. I mean, they got the whole town here. And so they finally find Jesus, and they say, come on, we need to come back, you know. I mean, we could make you mayor of the town right now. I mean, you are so popular. And what does Jesus say at that point? Let us go somewhere else to preach there also. That is why I have come. And so the second principle is the principle of priorities. The preaching of the gospel. Would you not agree that every problem we've talked about tonight ultimately finds its answer in the preaching of the gospel? And I think we need to make sure that we have a priority here. As important as social service and social action is, the primary task of the church is what? To preach the gospel. As individuals hear the gospel, they change. And so I think, again, even in the midst of some of the political activism, we need to make sure that we keep our priorities straight. In the 1980s, I remember one individual saying, you know, I believe that through social action and political involvement, we can bring in the kingdom of God. And I just laughed at that and I said, that is a heretical statement. Because that is not how we're going to bring in the kingdom of God. We're going to bring it in by the preaching of the gospel. So we need to make sure that we keep our priorities straight. Third principle is what I call the principle of divine sovereignty. And in this particular case, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, has kind of seeing his whole kingdom. He looks out and he believes his press clippings. One of uh, people that we've had at Dallas Seminary over the years, Tony Evans, said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had a theo-ego, a God complex. And then now he has this dream and Daniel helps him understand the significance of it. And Daniel says, in order that the living may know that the Most High, who is that? Yahweh is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it, that is, rule, power, and authority on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. And so I think it teaches that God is sovereign over politics and society. Or put another way, God is in control even when we don't believe that God is in control. I think it also helps us understand that sometimes by prayer and fasting and action, we can see some remarkable things take place. Because after all, God is in control. I've many times identified what I call the myth of momentum. The argument always has been that if things are going in this direction, they'll just continue to go on in that direction politically. And that is so untrue. I remember when I started, we were over lunch today talking about how one of the radio programs I did from our home. (laughs) Because it was easier to do it from our house than it was for me to drive to KCBI and back. Easy in the sense I didn't have to drive. Hard for Suzanne because when you got three kids and you're doing a live show at 7 o'clock at night, it's sometimes really very, very difficult. But nevertheless, I remember when we came on the air, and that was back in 1988 and 1989, 
the first story we talked about was how silly it was that Ronald Reagan had stood at the Brandenburg Gate and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. How at that time, Mr. Gorbachev had won the prize, if you will, from Time Magazine of Man of the Year. And yet, a year later, the Berlin Wall fell, and all of the things that people thought were going to continue on had simply turned around instantaneously. And so I have oftentimes been struck by how fleeting and how quick God can change the affairs of man, change the affairs of political regimes and even of empires. And I think the principle of divine sovereignty recognized that even when you think the king or the president is in control, really there's only one person that's in control, and that's God. The fourth principle is what I'll call the principle of gifts and callings. And that is in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 6, it says there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of ministries in the same way. Lord, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all people. And so what we can see is there are different gifts and different callings. And I think it's important to recognize that I think there's a base level. I think all of us need to pray for those in authority, obey those in authority. I think maybe even voting for those in authority. But some might be called to a higher level of political participation than others. But you have to determine where God's calling you. If you're a doctor, I think God is calling you to be testifying to the sanctity of human life in the medical field. If God has called you to the legal field to testify to doing proper jurisprudential, if you will, interpretation. God has called you to the business world. Show people what a godly man or woman looks like in the business world. If God has called you to be a parent, recognize that you're raising godly children for the next generation. But it also means that some people might be called to a higher level of political participation. And if they are, we should pray for them and encourage them because we need godly men and women to serve in this arena as in every other arena. It depends on your gift and your calling what God has called you to do. And the final one is a principle of what I call concession. The Apostle Paul talks about all sorts of things. To those under the law is those under the laws. Those not under the law and not under the law. I become a Jew to the Jews or the Gentiles to the Gentiles. Finally, he says, I become all things to all men so that I might save some. I see two ways to apply that. First of all, when we talk to non-Christians, I think it's important to maybe, if they disagree with you politically, set that aside. Matter of fact, when I'm interacting with a non-Christian, I'm sharing the gospel. If they say, well, I believe in evolution, I say, you know what? I don't, but that's okay. There are a number of Christians I know that do believe in evolution, so let's go back and talk about who Jesus Christ is. I don't let them distract me at all. You know, if they say, well, I'm a Democrat, there's no way I could be a Christian, you know, or I'm a libertarian, there's no way I could be a Christian, or I'm a Republican and all my people hate me because, whatever. I just say, doesn't matter, you know, I know Republicans, Democrats, independents, all sorts of people, Tea Party, non-Tea Party people, all sorts of people that are Christians. So let's get back to who Jesus Christ is. The point I'm making is I become in that evangelistic opportunity all things to all people that I might win some. And I think there is a problem today in the fact that a lot of non-Christians think that in order to become a Christian, I've got to be pro-life, pro-family, pro-defense, whatever else, uh, supporter of Michael Medved, whatever, you know, uh, uh, listening to talk radio and uh, watch Fox News, or I don't know what it is, you know. They've got this whole criteria about what it means to be a Christian. And I say, no, no, no. You know, in some respects, that's putting the sanctification before the justification. I'm not sure all that's sanctified anyway. So the bottom line is, we come back to the issue. We don't let these other political issues or social issues get in the way of the gospel. 
But I think there's also an application there to Christians. Because I would have to say that there are many issues where you could honestly say that there is the Christian view. I would opt to say that the Bible is pretty clear about the issue of homosexuality. You know, whether I look at Genesis 19 or whether I look at Leviticus 18 and 20, whether I look at Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians, pretty clear. And so, yeah, I, that, that one maybe is a little more significant. I think you can make a pretty good case against abortion based on Psalm 139 and Psalm 51.5 and many other passages. Uh, certainly, when we talk about doctrine, you know, I'm going to go to the mat on justification by faith, the authority of the Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay, those are, those are pretty solid. But, you know, if somebody would say, well, this is the Christian position on the debt ceiling decision a few weeks ago... <laughs> You know, this is the Christian position on the International Monetary Fund. You know, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, I have strong views on all sorts of issues. You can read my daily commentary, or as a matter of fact, I should probably mention that tomorrow in case any of you want to get it and disagree with me or agree with me. But the bottom line is, I make it very clear that this is my opinion. This is not the Christian view on some of those issues. And so I think the principle of concession says, you know, we sometimes as believers can agree to disagree. But at the same time, we need to be civil about our disagreement there is a way in which we can disagree without being disagreeable and that is certainly another principle of concession well lots of things i can say but again i'm a talk show host and i know how to end on time and if you look at your watch it says eight o'clock and that's what i'm supposed to do but again there's a chapter in my book if you wanted to read more on christian ethics in plain language if uh, some of this was of interest to you i think we do have some powerpoint presentations one called one nation under god which takes you through the entire history of the united states from the first uh, uh, plymouth rock um, and the pilgrims and the puritans all the way up to the end of the Constitution. We also have some others on Christians and social action. All of that is available. But again, some of it's available in my book. But again, visit our website, probe.org. And I think you want me to pray, or do you want to just stand up here? Stand up. Okay, well, I'll turn it back over to Joe.